Good morning, church. Man, I'm so glad that you're here this morning to celebrate a risen Savior with me. We've come together as a family of God to do this every single first day of the week. But you know, we do that every day of the week in our own lives because we do serve a risen Savior, do we not? Uh, he blesses us in so many different ways, and uh, we, we lose count of all the ways that He does indeed bless us. But uh, we want to give Him all the glory and praise for all that He's done in our life and will continue to do. He's there even when we don't feel Him, when we don't see Him. He's always walking with us, uh, and we celebrate that very idea today. Thanks for coming together today to do that and to encourage one another on the journey that we're on together. We're in this thing together, not only the Holy Spirit within our hearts, but each other on the left and right as we go together. I want to say a welcome to our guests that are here this morning. Thanks for joining us, being a part of our assembly today, and I hope you've seen Christ in our midst. Uh, along with that, we hope that if you're looking for a church home, that you'd consider Crosspoint uh, as a place where you can land your family, so to speak, and get involved in telling the story of hope that is Jesus Christ. We'd love for you to join us with your gift set, and together we can come together uh, not only locally but around the world to tell the story of Jesus Christ in different and sundry ways. Thanks again for being here today. We're going to be in John chapter 5 this morning, and so if you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn there as we take a look at a story that's probably going to be familiar to you, but my hope is uh, we're, we're right in the middle of this giving series called Giving In. Uh, and as we glean some things from this story, hopefully we're going to really affect our own hearts and think about how we are blessed by God and what that calls us to as far as what does it mean to live generously because God has given us so much. We also want to give in lots of different ways, and there's opportunities to do that all over the place. But uh, we want to dig into this story today and to see what Jesus Christ has revealed to us in his ministry that's very effective and practical for us in our own life. You remember last week we kicked off this series talking about how do we give when we just have a little. And maybe in your own life you think, man, my bank account's not very big. I don't have a lot of gift sets uh, within me. Maybe I don't have a lot of time on my hands uh, to give back to God. And so what does that look like when you just have a little to give? And today we want to talk about what does it look like to give when you have some. And I would guess probably that's most of us in here. Maybe you've got a little more than a little, but you haven't hit the jackpot yet either. You're kind of somewhere in the middle. Uh, and so how do you give, how do you live generously when that really describes the kind of life that you are in the middle of right now? You know, it's interesting when you look at culture and history. Some 2,000 years ago when Jesus taught uh, among the Jewish nation, they would have heard his stories differently than you and I hear them. Because see, in their life, there wasn't any separation. Everything was under God's control. There wasn't one thing over here and a different thing over here. There was no such word really as spiritual. They wouldn't have understood the idea of a spiritual life, and that's because everything... Everything was considered spiritual in Jesus' world. In the Jewish nation, every single thing was considered spiritual. Now think for a minute, if, if everything is spiritual in our life, then we don't compartmentalize, do we? We don't set things apart different from God. It all falls under that one umbrella. As a matter of fact, our faith becomes the umbrella that everything falls underneath. And so as you're sitting at that kitchen table doing homework, 
that is part of spiritual life. As you're a parent, making sure your kid does that homework, that's a part of spiritual life. As you order from the menu at a restaurant, when you tip the waitress, all of that falls under spiritual life. Yes, even the physical intimacy maybe a husband and wife have together, that falls under spiritual life. Every single thing in Jesus' culture falls under the umbrella of faith. It is part of spiritual life. I mean, in Jesus' day, they wouldn't have asked, how's your spiritual walk going? How's your spiritual life going? They simply would have asked, how's life? With the understanding that we're talking about spiritual. A little different than we operate today. Because we end up compartmentalizing things in our own life. Now, if it's true for us, if we look into what the story implies for us in our own life, the way Jesus lived and taught, if that would be true for us, what would change in your life? If you bought into the idea that every single thing is spiritual, what would change in your life? Because I think the truth is, if you're like me, in our postmodern culture, as we live here in America, that our life kind of looks like this, this cabinet, this little dresser that I've got up here this morning. And we compartmentalize some things in our life. For instance, you may pull out one particular compartment and you, you pull out a, a picture of, if I can get it out, of uh, family or friends or maybe coworkers. And your relationships are compartmentalized in one part of your life. You've got all of those relationships that you've got going on in your life, for good or bad, they're all located in one little part of your life. Or you may dig into another compartment and we'll use this laptop as work. Maybe you've got work in one area of your life. If you're in school, this would be school for you. You've compartmentalized that part uh, in, in, in your life. It's segregated out. It's over here. Maybe for you, it's politics. I mean, are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? I mean, would you, would you say you're a liberal or a conservative? I mean, that guy doesn't know how to run the country. This is how I would do it. Whatever your views are in politics, you've compartmentalized that and you've put that in, a, in its own drawer, if you will, or maybe, maybe entertainment. How do, you, how do you look at sports? What types of movies do you see? What books do you read? What do you do for fun in your life? And you've got that in a particular compartment of your life. Because when you see me at the ball game and I'm going a little bit ballistic because my team isn't working, uh, that's not the same guy you might see on Sunday, right? I'm not talking about me personally, no. I mean, you've got one part of your life too that's, you know, the, the finances, you've got one area that's the 401k, the savings, the checking account the money under the mattress, whatever you do there. And then you've got one area, that's, that's your spiritual life. You've got a compartment for that as well. And if we're not careful, then we don't see the way Jesus wants us to live life. That's where faith is the umbrella for every single thing in our life. I mean, on Sunday morning, you're happy for me to open the spiritual drawer and talk to you a little bit about the Bible and how Jesus might want us to live. But if I try to open any of those other drawers and tell you to do some change there, I might be missing a finger. You might slam that shut. You might say, no, that's, that's not, we're not going there today. Don't talk to me about that relationship or how I use my money or what types of things I do for entertainment. We compartmentalize, but understand that in Jewish culture, there's not many drawers. There's simply one big drawer. And God is a part of every single piece of life.
That's why right now, you know, we, we've got everything compartmentalized. So right now in the NFL, when a player takes a knee, we get bent out of shape about that because that's entertainment, but yet you're bringing politics into entertainment, and those two things should be separate. I mean, I paid to see this game, or I paid my TV bill in order to watch the game, not see what you think about a certain thing going on in politics. It just seems easier, right, if we keep everything separated out, if we have everything in their own basket, so to speak. But understand this, you and I both need to understand, that if you want to keep faith in its own drawer, then we're no longer talking about Christian faith. Because Jesus has called us to live his way in every part of our life. Not just the ones you choose to give him, but he wants to sit on the throne of every single piece of your life. See, biblically, we're called, according to Jesus and what he's asking of us, to surrender everything to him because everything is spiritual. Everything is surrendered to him. If you look through Jesus' life in those four Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you find is that Jesus talks more about money and possessions than he does heaven or hell. We talked last week, and he uses story a lot to help his audience understand the direction he wants us to go, how we're called to live. And out of those 38 stories, 16 of them have to do with money and possessions, how we're to use what he's blessed us with. What does that life look like for us? And for each one of us, it would be interesting to to take an inventory and say, well, what do I have in the money drawer, so to speak. We'll call it the money drawer this morning. What do I have in that drawer that I'm securing, that I'm keeping for myself, that I'm making sure nothing else really gets to it? And most of us would say that we have more than a lot of the world around us, but we would probably go on to say, but I really don't have a lot. And if you remember last week, the statistic we used, if you make $34,000 a year, then you're in the top 1% of earning power in the world. Wow, that's staggering, isn't it? To think how many families are surviving on less than that every single year. See, when you have some in life, a little more than a little, but not quite the jackpot. When you have some in life, how do you deal with what God's given you? How do you live life in a way that gives him glory, that gives him honor, that gives him the respect that is due him? And then we come to John chapter 6. Now, Jesus in his ministry has become extremely popular. He is sought out. People want to follow him. They know that if they connect with Jesus, there's going to be a miracle. There's going to be some crazy thing happen that they're going to be able to go home and tell their grandkids about or their kids about or their best friend. You'll never guess what happened today. This guy named Jesus from Nazareth, he raised someone from the dead. He healed a blind man. He did X, Y, or Z. It's going to be phenomenal. Jesus is extremely popular right now. And our text tells us in chapter 6, They say the number that are with him in this moment in time are 5,000 men. Now, that number exists because it's a very patristic society, meaning that it's very, uh, leans toward the male, not the female. And so they typically only counted the men that were in the group. But a lot of scholars say if you do the math, 
If you figure out who all could have been there, whether we're talking wives, single ladies, children, the crowd could have been as big as maybe 12,000 people that are there to watch Jesus do miracles, that are here to hear him teach with authority from the word of God. They're there to hopefully get a different life because of who Jesus is. Now, 12,000. Let's, let's put, let's put the, a visual on that, if you will. Every Sunday, we have two services in this room, and on a good day, we might, on any one service, have 250 people in this room. If that were the case, that would be this room times 48. That's how many people are there to, to gather around Jesus to see what he has to offer. How, Jesus, will you, can you change my life? And then Jesus begins in verse 5 of chapter 6. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him, turning to Philip. He asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew where, what he was going to do. And Philip replied, Even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Now, one translation says it's a year's wage that would take to feed the number of people that are there in the presence of Jesus. Now, in your own mind, think about what you make every year. You should know that if you're doing your tax returns. Think about that number, calling up Panera for a little (laughs) delivery. That's a lot of folks. That's a lot of food. Jesus already knew the way that he was going to glorify God in this moment, but he's testing Philip. He wants Philip to discover the reality of who Jesus is yet once again. And Phil is running the numbers, and he's not happy because it's going to take a year's wages to feed the number of people that are here. And what we discover through this story and other stories is a truth that you and I can live by each and every day. Here's the truth. That where God guides, he will always provide. Where God is leading you, he will always make a way out. Where God is taking you to, he's already got a plan for how you're going to move forward in that moment of your life. You may not see how it's going to happen, but he already knows. And he's going to do miraculous and blessed things in your life. Things that maybe you haven't counted on yet. And as we talk about money and wealth and resources, you think, well, that sounds nice, Tim. But you haven't seen my drawer. I've got three $1 bills in there. How is that going to work out for me? Understand that it's not always a paycheck in the mail. It's not always some financial reimbursement because God knows what you need best in your life. It may, need, it may be surrounding group of friends who are going to help you walk and journey in life to give God glory. It may be health. It may be peace in your life right now. Phil was there when Jesus turned to him and said, I want you to go take care of the food that are going to feed this group of people. And understand that Philip was there when Jesus turned water to wine. Philip was there when he healed the the, the, the lame man 
lifted him off of his mat, and he began to walk for the first time in his life. But when Jesus turns to Phil and says, feed these folks, Philip says, I don't think this is going to work. Isn't that how it works for us so many times in our life? We see God's provision over and over again. We see him blessing us in ways that we cannot count. And a moment happens where we look at Jesus and we go, no, not today. Not going to happen today. I don't think that this is going to work out the way that you say it is going to work out. But time and time again, we see God fulfill his promises. But fulfill, the numbers just aren't adding up, are they? He's doing the touch math, and he's thinking, I don't think this is going to work out. And here's the thing that we know about Jesus in his ministry. God throughout time is that Jesus does his best work when the numbers don't add up. When you and I have doubt, that's when all of a sudden Jesus shows up and he says, let me show you how that's going to work. I think about one particular story, the book of Exodus, Old Testament, second book of the Bible, chapter 14. There's a moment in time where God raises up a leader by the name of Moses. Now, Israel has been in bondage. They have been slaves in Egypt, the most powerful country in the world. They've been slaves there for 430 years, and they're tired of being in slavery. So God sends Moses to get them out of that bondage, and sure enough, That all comes to fruition. The king of Egypt, Pharaoh, releases, some scholars say, as many as one million slaves. And they begin a westward journey into the wilderness. And they arrive at a huge body of water, the Red Sea. They can't get across. What are we going to do? And they look on the horizon and they see a dust cloud. And it is the largest, most ferocious army in the world coming to reclaim them. Pharaoh has got his chariots, his horsemen, his foot soldiers, and they're all coming to get Israel back. We've got this army on this side. We've got a large body of water on this side. God, what do we do? But remember, God does his best work when the numbers don't match, when they don't add up. And if you heard the story before, you know that God parts the water that those Israelites cross that sea on dry land. They get to the other side. The Egyptian army follows them into that sea. And when the Israelites are safe on the other side, God closes up the water and that army is no more. Can you imagine the elation on the Israelites' faces when they see the miraculous work of God when the numbers don't match up? Wow. We are loved. But you and I, we think about our own lives, right? And we think, well, wait a minute, that, that's not in the budget. I'm not sure that we can afford to do that. I, I didn't get the raise like I thought I was going to. There's no real sight on how this is going to work out as far as accomplishing what I think God might be calling me to. But don't slam the door, don't shut the windows, because God's not done working in your life yet. You don't have everything in place for that adoption. He says, don't, don't stop the process because maybe you're short on money. 
He says, don't, don't stop plans for going on that mission trip because you can't see where the funds might be coming from. He says, have faith in me and bring my tithe into the storehouse and let me show you how I'm going to bless you enormously. Don't stop your movement toward being debt-free simply because you had a new expense pop up. No, I'm still with you. I'm walking with you. And I've got a plan for you that maybe you can't even see. Stay faithful. And in our story, there's another disciple by the name of Andrew. Andrew is the brother of Simon Peter. Now, Andrew, they've all been sent out to look for food in the middle of these 12,000 people. And Andrew sees a young boy who's brought his box lunch. And uh, it's five loaves and two fishes. Two fish. I guess fish is not the right word. (laughs) Sorry, I regressed back to Arkansas there for a minute. (laughs) He looks at that lunch box and he says, hey, come on up. Uh, He brings him into the midst of where Jesus is and the other disciples And he says, this is what I found. Now, everyone else is looking at 12,000 people and this lunchbox. Now, you've had these moments before with your friends, right? You make plans. You're going to go down to the game or you're going to make this trip across country or or you're going to have this thing happen and it's going to be awesome and you're talking about how this is going to unfold. And your friends know there's not enough money, there's not enough time, there's not enough whatever to make all of this happen. And they simply roll their eyes at you. You've had that happen before, I'm sure. You had this great, ingenious plan, and they're just like, what? You can imagine Andrew walking up in the midst of these, these guys, and they're like, are you serious? Lunchbox, did you see all these people? This just is not going to work out. But then we see the miracle happen in verse 11. And it's a miracle that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. Now, when you see a story that's in all four of the Gospels, it makes me think that God wants us to see something in between the lines. That his desire is that we discover something in the middle of that story. And it says in verse 11, Then Jesus took the loaves, he gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. And afterward he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. You don't have a lot there, but God multiplies it so that everybody has exactly what they need. See, there's a struggle uh, among humans, I think, just to be content, maybe with what we've got. This place may be the most dangerous place to be when you just have some. Because if you have a little, like we talked about last week, if you just have a little, then you are praying. You're hoping God is going to provide something for you. If you've got a lot, if you hit the jackpot, you pretty well know where your next meal is coming from. But when you've got some, hmm, I might withhold some of that just to make sure. As we learned last week, when you have some you tend to want just a little bit more, don't we? You see, some of us live with this spirit of discontentment, this idea that everything isn't just lining up for us and we're not real happy about it. 
there's a website where you can go. It's a medical website. You can plug in the symptoms if you're feeling sick, the symptoms that you have, and it will give you a prognosis. Maybe one thing may give you a couple of ideas. You could have this thing going on in your life. In that same website, you can plug in uh, your sickness if you know absolutely what you have, and it will tell you what some of the symptoms of that particular sickness might be. Well, this morning, I wanted to plug in the idea of discontentment and look at what some, not all by a stretch, but what some of those symptoms might be. You bought a new car two years ago. It's in great shape. You're loving the way it drives. But your friend just bought the new model. And it's got a gizmo in it that you don't have. And so you're thinking, maybe time to trade this puppy in. Do something different. Or maybe you go over to a friend's house on the weekend for the cookout that they invited you to. A lot of folks are there. You're helping in the kitchen, and that's when you see the remodel. And you think, although your kitchen functions just fine, it's time to get that remodel. And maybe you, you walk into your closet off the master bedroom. By the way, it's a room that's named for the things that are in it, closet. You look at everything hanging up and you scratch your head and think, I just don't have anything to wear tonight. You have a number of credit cards that are maxed out because you've tried to buy happiness in your life. Most of us believe that we would be better off if I just had 20% more in my paycheck when three years ago you said if you had what you made right now, you'd be happy. There's a book out called The Hunger for More, and the author states, more. If there's a single word that summarizes American hope and obsessions, that's it, more. More money, more success, more luxuries, more gizmos. We live for more. We live for the next raise, for the next house. And the things that we already have, however wonderful they are, then pale in comparison to the things that we might still get. That's kind of how our culture has trained us. But biblical authors say it a little differently. Like the writer in Hebrews chapter 13, where he says, Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. Or the writer of Ecclesiastes Chapter 6, enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless. It's like chasing the wind or Jesus in Luke chapter 12 when he said, life is not measured by how much you own. You see, our culture bombards us every single day of the week with the stuff we don't have. And Jesus reminds us, Remember what I've given you and what you do have, that everything in your life is spiritual. That everything belongs to me. That everything, as you, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you, you offer it to me. It's a, it's a surrender to me. I don't know how many of you draw, uh, fly. When you get on a plane, there's a couple of magazines in the back of the seat in front of you, and one of those is Sky Mall. Anybody ever looked at Sky Mall? 
It's a very interesting magazine because there's stuff in there that you never knew that you needed. And the minute you start reading the descriptions of these things, you're thinking, I could use that. I, I, I might buy that. I'm not a pet guy, but I'm thinking maybe I, I could get a raincoat for my dog. Next picture, there it is. I mean, every dog needs one of those, right? Everybody needs a huge statue of Bigfoot in their front yard, right? I mean, there, there are things that culture pushes on us saying, this is what you need to be happy. These are the things that you could do in life that would just make you happy. But when we open our Jesus drawer for 75 minutes on a Sunday and the rest of the week, we're inundated with this type of stuff. It's hard to be content at times. We almost always compare up, don't we? Never down. I don't have a million dollars. I don't have a car like that. My skin doesn't look like that. But if we were to compare down and realize how many people have less than we do, we would feel blessed and honored by what God's done for us in our life. We've used the analogy of an ice cream bowl up here on stage before. We're just fine eating our ice cream until we look at someone else's bowl. They've got one more scoop than we do. They've got sprinkles. Why didn't I get sprinkles? We were happy with our bowl until we looked at someone else's. But Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 12 that we are called to rejoice when someone else is blessed. That we're to be happy when other folks find joy in their life. We're not looking to covetly take away from their own living. You see, we have a challenge when we are living a life with just some. We're called to be generous. And what we discover along the way is if we follow the, the method and, and the desire that God has for us in our life, when we look at Jesus' own life and that becomes part of who we are, we realize that generosity is the cure for discontentment. We realize that serving other people will actually bring us joy in our life. We discover that, that giving is the antidote for materialism. That, that you and I are called to be different than the world around us. That we're not called to have lots of drawers, but one big drawer that God is a part of and that Jesus Christ is Lord and King of all. Everything in your life. You see, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 14 some interesting idea. He's telling those that believe in God, and today that would be us, bring the tithe to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored. Doing this will teach you always to fear the Lord your God. And we sit there and we think, no, wait, wait, wait. I thought God needed my money. And the truth is, if God wanted your money, he would take it. What he wants you and I to do is to make him the priority in our life. He wants to be number one in every aspect of our life. The purpose in living generously is to create a habit of putting God first. 
It's the idea when we make a decision to live this way that God can do more with my 90% than I can do with my 100%. It's the idea of living generously knowing that God has already been generous to me in my life, not only with blessing, but understanding what he did through his son Jesus Christ to create relationship back with him. It's the idea to say, God, you have given everything that you possibly could to me. And because of that, I also am going to surrender everything back to you because I would be nothing without you or what you've done for me. It's the idea that it is a life that I'm going to dedicate to God and not to me and the accumulation of stuff. I'm going to put the Sky Mall magazine back. And I'm going to lean into the blessing that God has for me in my life. What about you? Don't you want to embrace that? Don't you want to lean into everything that Jesus Christ wants for you in your life? I mean, understand, his plans for you and for me are beyond greater than anything you and I could even dream of for ourselves. He wants so desperately to give you everything that you want in life but mostly that you would have peace and love and harmony and a relationship with God the Father. That's what he wants for you. But you and I have to make a decision to surrender everything to him for that to happen. And God says in Malachi, he says, when you make a decision to make me number one in your life, then I'm going to open the floodgates of heaven and I'm going to give you more blessings than you could possibly hold. I want some of that. How about you? I want to know that I'm on God's side. He's never on my side. I want to be on God's side. Church, it's a call this morning that we would reprioritize what we've got going on in our life, that we would make God number one, that we would make him the priority in every single thing we do and say. The challenge is out there for you to take this morning. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back to the stage. And our shepherds and their wives will be gathered along the wall of this room as we sing this song. Uh, My guess is there are some in here who need prayer for things that are going on in your life, a discovery uh, back to what God's called us to live. And I would encourage you as we sing this song that you would go speak with one of our shepherds, let them pray for you, pray over you, lay hands on you, that you would be empowered uh, with discernment and wisdom in your own life, that the Holy Spirit would reveal to you what you need to do. My hope is that you'll take the challenge this morning and that you'll follow Jesus Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's stand and sing together.